Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where we chat with startup founders just like you from all over the globe. Each episode, we bring you practical and actionable tips to help you escape the cubicle and begin your own startup journey. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, Podbrand Media. As a business owner, new sales leads are essential. At Podbrand Media, we create a branded podcast for you to generate those leads by interviewing your best potential clients as subject matter experts. Not only creating great rapport, but also great content to share in your industry. Affordable and effective. Contact us today at podbrandmedia.com to learn more. This is Kevin Pro with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my special guest today is Scott Baradell. Scott, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Thanks for having me. So I, um, you know, some podcasters actually do the intro for their guests. I find it's easier for the guests to do it because they they actually know what they're talking about and they're not reading something. So if you and I met like at a networking event, how would you introduce yourself to me? I own a PR and marketing firm in Dallas, Texas that does, that works for B2B tech companies. And our focus is on building trust between our clients and their audiences as a way to grow their business. So as a, you know, part of a, I think a good podcaster's repertoire is that they do research before the, the interviews. And the thing that just kept coming up over and over and over again, when I was looking at stuff, uh, you know, interviews you had done, you know, you, you kindly sent me a copy of your book and I, you know, speed read that this week. Um, just, there was a common thread through that entire thing. And in so many different, I think so many different perspectives around trust, Tell me why, just let's just get the conversation started. Why is trust so important? Well, obviously, you know, not just um, in business, but in all aspects of our lives, we depend on trust, gosh, just about every minute of every day, sometimes without thinking of it. We we trust that the the red light turns red when it's supposed to and turns green when it's supposed to. <laughs> We're kind of putting trust in our infrastructure. We're putting trust in in each other. Um, and in business, it's a leap of faith. It's trust when you decide to buy a product or or do business with another company. And so I've always found that fascinating. I thought that was something that was a way to look at what PR, which is my background is journalism and then PR, where PR came from to think more broadly about the things PR can do toward this end of securing trust right. because just being in traditional media doesn't secure trust in the way it used to so you have to find other ways you have to pull together cobble together ways to to do that for your clients and so i thought it was always ultimately all about trust and the next step was you know once you realize that as an agency helping our clients to gain the trust that our audience is the most important thing it's how do you do that and that's where i kind of uh, uh, developed, I didn't come to the term, but developed the this concept of trust signals mm-hmm. as a way that uh, that is companies and people earn trusts from each other. And and if you start isolating that, you can you can do a better job of of managing it, and I guess better managing your marketing strategies and resources. All right. I, it's interesting. I mean, from a PR perspective, I mean, so often I think, you know, PR experts are called in to do damage control sometimes after the fact. And it's hard to, you know, it's, I don't know who said it, whether it was Churchill or Ben Franklin or some, you know, 
talking about how difficult it is to, you know, to build trust and how easy it is to lose it and how quickly you can lose it. But, you know, you've heard the, you've heard the expression, you know, you want your, your clients to know, like, and trust you, but it seems like, like looking at, at, you know, the things that you've written and some of the interviews you've done, you almost, it seems like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you almost seem like that trust is almost in its own category. And it, it is, it almost overshadows the other two, or maybe, you consider the that trust has you know like and know and like built into it type thing. So how would you balance yeah. those? Yeah, I think in in branding, uh, the word we use for for like is is affinity, mm-hmm. and I think brand affinity and brand trust are, are closely related. Generally, you you like a brand, like to buy from it because you you trust that their products are good, or or you trust that their values are aligned with yours. Increasingly, right. we, we buy based on values as much as a product, particularly in commodity businesses. So I do think they're all related, um, kind of similar to what you just said. You know, I mentioned in the book that, you know, Google has the formula that it, it uses when people, you know, a lot of people don't know that they have, Google has actually website raters, individual people, real people besides spiders and and bots and things that that go out and look at websites and and their the guidelines are have been something called eat they added another e to it but it, it's always been expertise authoritativeness and trustworthiness mm-hmm. and that you look for those things when you're when you're evaluating the quality of a website and in my mind trustworthiness kind of covers the other two you know i'm not going to yeah. do business with you if i don't think you have the expertise to do what i need you to do and if you haven't established enough authority, which is highly related to that. So I kind of feel the same way. I kind of feel like I can trust someone to do a good job for me and they not be my best friend, but I wouldn't hire my best friend just because they're my best friend. So I think maybe to the extent it doesn't all fall into trust, I'll err on the side of choosing trust. So I, uh, in looking at your book this week, uh, there was an interesting story you talked about. You talked about your son being a being a UVA fan, a University of Virginia fan, and like from birth, you know, type thing. And he said, you know, that when Virginia won the national championship, that all these other kids became UVA fans, and he he was like, "There, these are band bandwagon, you know, fans, so to speak." But so then that led me to think. So what's the connection to UVA for people that live in Texas? And then I did a little more research and found <laughs> out you're a grad, you know, and I'm sitting here like 50 miles away from, you know, UVA's campus right now. Oh, but, is that right? Yeah. So it's uh, go who's, but uh, the <laughs> the whole idea of just, uh, you know, the, how there is, you know, part of trust is like, there's some longevity to it. There's a, you know, that's how you keep, you know, that, that's how you retain clients. That's how you build this, you know, this relationship, you know, over a long period of time. But I thought that was an interesting, you know, little uh, anecdotes you included in your, in your story about your, in the book about your son, but it's, it is so important in today's climate. And you looked at it from so many different perspectives, like from, from a news perspective, from a company branding perspective, from a product perspective. I mean, how is it, and it's interesting that you were talked about. It's not like we're losing trust. It's almost like a shift. Is that the kind of what you were yeah, talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned the, there's a, one of my favorite movies is a, is called Magnolia. I don't know if you've seen it by PT Anderson and director and, and there's this very kind of sad character on it. And he had been a, a 
they called him Quiz Kid. Anyway, he was a child prodigy who won all this money in the game show. And then he went on to kind of lead this life where he never found love. He never, you know, and he's, he's in this really sad state at toward the end of the movie. And he's sitting down with a police officer because he had just gotten in trouble. And he says, I really do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. Mm. And I think that's how a lot of people have felt, you know, as, as their faith in institutions yeah. that we've yeah. always believed in. I think it just happens, seems to happen more and more today. Who would have thought that people would be questioning institutions like the FBI or just mm. take your pick, all yeah. the government institutions, yeah. somebody, some fairly large group is is questioning um, whether they can be trusted. Mm. And, uh, you know, you go back to the days of Walter Cronkite and three news channels. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time when there was a kind of a, a consensus that was in retrospect, you could say was largely driven by the mainstream media. Mm. And there weren't a lot of other voices to, to kind of fracture that sense of shared point of view. Mm-hmm. And now that we've increasingly lost faith in a lot of these sources of mm-hmm. been authoritative sources for us in the past, we have to find new ones. We can't just say, uh, because people basically are, studies show that people are really, really unhappy when they don't feel like, like they can trust anybody. So mm-hmm. they have to go out and find the sources of information and the people they can trust. I gave the example of Donald Trump in the book yep. also, because you know, if you if you look at mainstream media and you look at sources that are collecting, you know, his mistruths, I think the Washington Post said he told 30,000 lies mm-hmm. in his presence. And yet you survey Republicans and Democrats or just survey people, forget the parties for a minute, right. get a large group of people who are, who are going to say he's the most dishonest president ever. And then you're going to have a large group of people who say he's the most honest mm-hmm. president ever. Yeah. So that was never the case with like a Richard Nixon. Right. You might have said, I like Richard Nixon, but I'm not going to say he's honest. You know? exactly. I'm not going, I'm not crazy. Right. Yep. Um, and so that's, that's the things that's changed. That's a fundamental difference in how, and how things have evolved based on, you know, having different versions of the facts. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that, that's a, and I mentioned Donald Trump because I, I think what, one of the reasons he's developed such a strong following um, of people who think he's the most honest president ever, uh, think he's the greatest thing, president ever, and they show up for rallies and things. We haven't seen that for a president before. And I think it's directly related to it. You've got a, a large group of people who have lost trust in institutions. Mm-hmm. They yep. need somewhere to put, they've got a lot of trust to give. They don't know where to put it. Right. And they put it in Donald Trump because he represented a reaction to all these institutions they had lost faith in. Mm-hmm. And so it just shows how the, the concept in the book is that trust is immutable. Yeah. You know, if we trust in something, we want to go take that trust and find something else to invest it in. Mm-hmm. That, that is, that's really an interesting concept. And as we, as we want to kind of apply that in the, in the business sphere, um, as a business owner, how do you gain trust how do you build trust in your client base? Well, the, the the simplest way to build trust is to do good work for people and then let those people say good things about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much easier to grow your business if other people are saying good things about you 
rather than you saying good things about yourself yeah. because people tend to believe it more if other people are saying it. And so, you know, from a practical uh, standpoint in terms of marketing yourself, that's why leading with your customers and clients on your website is so important. You know, have don't go with stock art. Have real pictures of your customers, mm. real videos, real testimonials, and don't say the client's name is Chuck B. Give it a real name. Say where they're from. Give background. People don't buy all that uh, stuff anymore. So if you're not going to get permission from someone who who's going to give you, let you, you share their information in an authentic way, it's 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 not worth it. Um, but the more of that you have, that 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 kind of uh, social proof, the, those are trust signals, and and there's not any better trust signal than that. After that, you know, there are organizations that a lot of people believe in. Um, again, since everyone doesn't all look to the same things, you have to think about who your audience is. But the Better Business Bureau, um, having that uh, Better Business Bureau seal on your site, having an A-plus rating, those are things that, uh, particularly for that over 40 yeah. audience, you have a local business, a plumbing business, a specific kinds of businesses with specific client clientele. That something like a BBB seal, which isn't mm. that hard to get, it's just a matter of paying a little money to to be a member, and then you just have to respond to any complaints you might get. Mm -hmm. That's like gold. But then so many uh, businesses don't realize the value of it and don't do it. Um, also, um, I mentioned that that's something that is can be very effective for certain businesses. For other businesses, not a big deal. If you're already a well-established brand, you don't need the Better Business Bureau vouching for you. You need other things, right? but you don't, you don't need that. Yeah. Like, like Google ratings or that are legitimate, you know, you, they're not just these, you know, I, I bought 10,000 Google reviews, you know, from, from some shop in overseas that just continually like did these on a run. But um, I, I, um, I love the way that you define um, there's this, the, you know, PR defined. And I think in, I don't know if it was in your book or if it, I, I heard this on one of your podcasts, but you said, you know, PR def is defined by securing trust at scale, you know, unpack that just a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was kind of a reaction to a couple of things. You know, one is that the, the public relations society of America, which has kind of been the leading PR trade association since the forties, um, uh, about 10 years ago came up with a, its latest definition that updated periodically. And it was that public relations is the strategic communications process of establishing mutually beneficial relationships between organizations and their publics. And I'm like, I've never had a client in 18 years or a prospect ask me to establish mutually beneficial relationships. That That is not, <laughs> that is like, that's nice to talk about in academia. There are lots of syllables involved there, but it is not going to help uh, me grow business. It's not going to, to tell a client what I as a PR practitioner can do for them. So the, what has the, the default always been? The default has been, well, get me media coverage. Mm -hmm. Like I can get you media coverage. That's what, one thing that PR firms have always done. But guess what? You know, as we talked about the 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 influence, reach, authoritativeness of, let's say, even getting a story in the New York Times yep. compared to what it was twenty years ago, yep. it's a it's a fraction of what it was. And mm -hmm. guess what? The staffs across the board, less at the New York Times than, than most daily papers, have been cut in half. Mm -hmm. Right? 
if the papers haven't gone away altogether. So there are fewer reporters to tell that story. So you get in this vicious cycle where you're working harder to get in front of a reporter to, to pitch your story to finally cover you. They finally cover it. I work twice as hard. And then it gets half as much attention or less than it did before yeah. because of this fragmentation. That is the PR profession. If they allow, if we allow ourselves to be defined that way, just painting itself into a corner that keeps mm -hmm. getting smaller. Smaller. So I said, well, okay, that's not a good future. Um, mutually beneficial relationship. Nobody wants that or even knows what that is. It's a, not even a goal. Um, what's a goal that makes sense, that is specific enough to be meaningful, but broad enough that there's a lot you can do besides just getting media coverage? And so I landed on securing trust at scale because I, what I love, one of the things I love most about the definition is that, you know, there's a lot of conflict in organizations between sales and marketing, sure. you know, sales, sales will be like marketing, you're giving, giving me crappy leads and marketing will be like, <laughs> are you closing the leads? Well, the point I make to salespeople is, you know, I'm sure that when you go out to make a sale, the first thing you do is you just go shake hands and start talking about the product, right? No, no. The most effective salespeople are the ones that go from place to place and wherever they go, they've established these relationships over mm -hmm. time. Yep. And that's what makes them valuable. Not that you can read something out of the product catalog, right? It's that you've earned the trust on a one-on-one -on -one basis of all these individuals that you can turn to and say, hey, I'm selling this product, it's the greatest thing. And all that pitch is only effective because you already built that trust over time. And I tell salespeople, all marketing is trying to do for those leads to be good. So what they want the marketing people to do is just put product collateral out there, sell, sell, sell. And then they wonder why the leads are crappy. And I say, well, that wouldn't work for you as a salesperson. Why do you expect it to work for marketing? Marketing has to scale what you're best at and why you're a good salesperson, scale the earning of trust. Yeah. And so explaining it that way, it gives it, 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 it kind of hopefully helps with the whole issue of marketing sales alignment. Mm -hmm. And it gives PR people a sense of purpose and focus beyond what I do besides get media coverage for people. It's uh, I think you had an interesting like comment about getting, you know, on in Forbes, you know, magazine and how, you know, that it sounds so good on paper, you know, oh, it has, a, we have a breach of a million, but you go back to that whole idea of fragmentation and, you know, so it's a, yeah, a million over a wide range of, you know, source channels or, or inputs, you know, or outputs. So it's, it is, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. And um, I think one that uh, as we, as we kind of drill down a little bit more and talk about idea Grove, you know, really, really kind of, get inside your head a little bit about as a business owner, as a, as a CEO talk when was idea Grove first formed? Uh, 2005. So this is year 18. And what led you to starting your own PR firm? Well, I had been um, working, uh, I, I was a journalist for several years. I actually worked my first job after I graduated from UVA was in Lynchburg, Virginia, which yeah. I did a couple of years. And then I went to Dallas and I've been in Dallas ever since. But and then I went into corporate uh, communications, corporate marketing. Mm -hmm. um, at a certain point, um, and it's really partly driven by all the changes I was seeing at that time with the emergence of social media and blogging and things like that. I wanted to be part of those things that were changing, but I was at a billion and a half dollar company at the time where, gosh, any kind of change was 
examined and re-examined and overanalyzed <laughs> until he ended up not doing anything. And so that was the biggest single reason. I was just ready to be my own boss. I didn't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur. I didn't think of myself that way or growing a company. I just wanted to have more fun doing what I was doing. And I thought I would have more fun doing it on my own because I would have more freedom to try out all the cool stuff that I was doing. And so the first thing I did was start a blog. Mm -hmm. The blog ended up picking up an audience. And before I knew it, my site was ranking well, I was getting customers. So all these things that we'd later apply for businesses, like by 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, um, you know, I, I was on the front end of that experiencing it myself mm-hmm. and, and the kind of, I was off and running after that. So what's been the journey from 2005 to today? Like how much has it grown? How do you got, how many people on staff now? What, what does it look like in 2023? Well, we've got um, about 3.9 million in revenues and about 30 employees, 29 or 30 employees. The, the, the journey is, you know, the first, as I said, I, we talked before, I was never the, the kind of person who was always the born entrepreneur who had the lemonade stands and all those things. I just like to write. I mean, I don't see myself as an entrepreneur. I see myself as a writer. That's the thing I like mm-hmm. doing most. It's my core skill. Yep. So even as a business owner, that I thought that way. And so the first five years, Idea Grove was just me, and mm-hmm. I was happy doing that. Yeah, I just got to a point as I'm getting a bigger family. I have five kids now, and um, and and I, as a one person, the size clients I could work with was was going to have an upper limit because it's just one person. So those things led me after five years to say, you know what? Let me go ahead and take a plunge. I still remember my hands shaking as I signed that first telecom contract. You know, you didn't have to sign up for three years at a time and it wasn't cheap. Um, that uh, I was just going to go for it and um, start. I always try to be, I was always a pay-as-you-go person, never took out loans or things like that. Eventually took out a line of credit, which I try not to use, but um, I've just kind of grown it incrementally from there. Um, so it, it's been, it's been fun. It's been a journey. That's for sure. Have you made it to this, have your own suite in Cowboy Stadium yet? Is that, is that where <laughs> we are? <laughs> no, I've actually gone backwards and all that stuff. Since I, I work for some big companies that had perks like that, they just <laughs> threw, threw around everybody. And, uh, I worked for a company that had, used to have be a part owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Mm-hmm. So I'd get to, I have floor seats sometimes, <laughs> but I'm a huge basketball fan. So I'm owner of a business, but you know, good luck. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, we 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 like to have a nice holiday party and a couple of nice things, but we're 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 working on a much smaller scale now. But that's okay. <laughs> I'm glad I got to experience those things. So the podcast is called Rising Tide Startups, and you said something really interesting just a second ago that I kind of want to unpack a little bit because I think it is it is true of a lot of our guests. Where you said, you know, you're I'm almost like an accidental entrepreneur. You know, I I'm a writer. I want to be a writer. That's what I love to do. But I out of necessity, I had to, you know, learn how to lead a company as well. So in that in that journey, what are two or three just really um, key lessons that you think you've learned that would be useful to people that are further behind you in the journey that, you know, are just, you know, a couple of just foundational principles that you wish you would have known, you know, starting out that would have really been game changers for you. 
I, yeah, I was thinking about that. I think the lessons are going to be different based on what that person needs or what their mm-hmm. background is. So for me, and this would apply to maybe some of your audience, but not others, I was always that achiever type who straight A's and I was very serious history student and, and I was very much about, you know, getting fairly graded for my work and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And, and, and everything was about, and then when I went into journalism, right, one of my byline on the story, you know what I mean? All the, all this kind of thing where it was about my, any rewards I got would be attached directly to how good I was at something. I, I, I tied everything so much to competence. So when I started hiring people, I really focused on trying to figure out their, their competence level. Hmm. You know, if it's a writer, cause I hired some senior writers to start out cause that's something I needed to scale um, from the start. Um, just looking at their, um, you know, their, their work and professional credentials and, and things like that. Um, and I continued to do that for, for quite a while, but then I would wonder why I had culture issues hmm. and it was because I didn't give enough emphasis to making sure the people would all be a fit with each other. And so we're way better at that now than we've ever been. We added something called culture index, which is a great tool for, um, for, for seeing where people are coming from to see if it, if it is a good fit with, with your existing culture. We develop values that we use in the hiring process in the evaluation process and promotions and raises and stuff. And what's happened just from doing that is we've got a much more harmonious group of people that together are much more productive. And I would say, gosh, I wish I had done that from the beginning Mm -hmm. because I was so focused on making sure I could hire the most talented person for what I could spend at every Mm -hmm. position. I, I didn't think enough about what if they all hate each other or what if you got someone who is really good, but all they care about is themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, coming from my background, that was a blind spot I had. Someone coming from another background might be just opposite. I think that has a lot broader application than I think you're giving it credit for, because I I think that's so important. But before you kind of go into maybe item number two, can I ask you a quick follow-up about that very thing? I mean, how do you kind of suss out you know, use a really kind of a hackneyed term. How do you suss out if the if the applicant is just trying to tell you, oh, yeah, I, I fit all those culture values. I, yeah, I believe in all those, you know, versus reality. How do you kind of weed through the the interview, you know, persona? We really try to get at questions where people are kind of put in a position, not to put it on the spot per se, but put in the position where they have to give real world, real life examples of mm, things. And as you dig into, and maybe you ask a couple of follow-up questions, you know, mm. so the old, the old thing about, you know, I, I never tell a lie because I never have to remember what I said. You know, exactly. if you're if you're not coming in and being honest about it, if you take enough interest to ask detailed questions to, to kind of probe those things, you can usually tell. And then it might be little subtle things that come out in the references and stuff too. But frankly, we're very straightforward about, hey, if we want what's best for you um, and and what's best for us, and if you're more like this than that, that's fine. You just not might not be happy here. Yeah. So we try to make it 
like also from the standpoint of people's egos you know um it's not you it's me you know (laughs) i love that uh that that is such an interesting i mean i've done 300 plus you know interviews and i don't think that anybody's ever mentioned that specific thing so what's uh what's maybe one other thing that that you think would be helpful well you're mentioning like people that are maybe earlier in their careers and and, mm-hmm. and stuff I, I remember one of the something that sticked with stuck with me since i was in my mid-20s that uh so i'll share it because it stayed with me for so long was um you know this was when i was still in journalism about a year away from um from from transitioning into marketing and um you know i i i had a friend uh, who was this calming presence in my life who i was just like you know i'd always been you know this high achiever right you know great grades super, you know all those things right and then i come out and i felt like my journalism career just kind of stalled and mm-hmm. and i felt like but i'm doing all these things right you know what's and but i i failed here or whatever and what she said to me was life is more forgiving than that in other words, you don't have to accomplish it all by 20. And, and also like this whole thing, a lot of times you'll have these hustle harder types talk about, oh, it's okay. You fail because you use that failure and get right to your next one and blah, blah, blah. How about it's okay to fail and then take a year off and backpack across Europe. Mm-hmm. It's okay to fail and take some time to go see if you want to be a chef instead. You know, those things are okay too. Life is long. So try to make it um, you know, try to take advantage of the the journey by by not seeing it as some ex, you know continuation of of school where you've just got to mm. you know get the best grade and and you're competing against everyone in your class and you know ultimately no one's looking at you um, uh, uh, as hard as you're looking at yourself <laughs> and you just need to enjoy your life. And whatever pace and whatever choices you make, uh, as long as they're your choices, they're going to be the they're going to be the right ones. You know, that's what I didn't get at that time. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm really glad my friend told me that because it, it stayed with me. I don't know that it completely sank in until later, even, but um, it was really good advice for me. Hey, it's a, it's a journey. I mean, life's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So uh, sure. it's, it's those are those are really good. Um, kind of that in the that section of our of our chat that we call the mentor moment you know just where you can really speak into those like i said or a little further behind you in the in the journey but you know we, t- we talked about a lot of things scott is there anything that we have not i haven't asked you about that you think would be really helpful to for our audience to hear as we kind of wrap up today uh no i think it's been a great conversation it's been fun to to uh to to chat and to hopefully there's some value in it for, for someone who listens, but um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Well, we will, uh, we will certainly make sure that your book is in the, in the show notes. And I encourage our listeners to go grab a copy because it, it really is a, it's a, it's not an, not that it doesn't have academia, you know, behind it, but it doesn't read like an academic book. It it really is a good read and, and uh, has just so much in, in the, you know, contained in the pages and, but I'm going to do something a little different today. Normally, I ask the the guest to kind of give us a closing thought, but I'm going to use uh, something that that you put in your book as to kind of close this out today that I thought was so so good. And and it, you said people demand places to put their trust, supply them that place, 
and you've got a customer for life. What a way to wrap up our our time today. And Scott, just I just want to thank you for taking time and really just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Make sure you follow up with our guests today and show them the support they deserve. As always, thank you for listening and playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide.